to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me with me, Raymond Nakamura. And me, Carolyn Nakamura. Carolyn, we're sitting in the vault surrounded by these clothes. Yes, we always choose the aisle that has the textiles because they produce an excellent sound dampening effect. But today, they're also a source of inspiration. Absolutely. I'm thinking especially of going through the donation of dresses that used to belong to Madame Goto, which is just behind me on my left side. Madame. That doesn't Madame sound Goto. very Japanese. Maybe you can elaborate well, on, on the Madame. So Madame Goto was known sort of as the Madame of Palace Street, and she did run some brothels in her time, although she also was known to run restaurants and gambling clubs. So a variety of different businesses. But she had a very particular reputation in the community. Part of that was positive. She was very friendly, apparently, especially to men. And she was known to be very generous and very glamorous. So she had all these amazing dresses. She was always very well dressed. So after she passed away, eventually the museum received a donation of dresses that used to belong to her that were mostly many of them from the 30s and 40s and 50s. And they're amazing examples of craftsmanship from that time period, particularly of Japanese Canadian dressmakers, of which there were a lot in the pre-war period. Mm -hmm. And we know all this partly through research in our database, but also because of one of the earliest online exhibits that the museum has, which is called Our Mother's Patterns. And I just was looking at this exhibit and it just occurred to me there's so much information in it that is almost buried. We don't really think about this exhibit that was made 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I suggested to you, Raymond, why don't we go through it and then sort of talk about what we learn from looking at the research and the artifacts that were assembled online for the Arm of Patterns exhibit. Right. I like the title of that too, because although it obviously refers to the sewing, the idea of patterns and lifestyles is such an interesting aspect of it because it was so significant. And nowadays, mm -hmm. sewing seems to be out of our consciousness, it seems. When I look at my own clothes, I need to hem my pants, but I haven't. And <laughs> all of my clothes are store-bought. Whereas looking into this research, I see how the sewing and the ability to make clothing was fundamental to what right. they did. Right. Well, every garment was made by a person. Do mm -hmm. you sew, Raymond? You the most how? I've done is stitch up some of my goalie equipment for, okay. for hockey. Well, yeah. that's useful. That's functional. Yeah. Actually, most of the sewing that I've done was I used to sew on my girl guide badges. Oh. And when I did ballet, I would sew the ribbons on my point shoes. You have to sew them on yourself every time you get a new pair, which is a lot. You go through a lot of point shoes. Mm. But I also did the home ec class where you learn how to use a sewing machine, but sewing machines scare me. Oh. <laughs> the bad. idea of a sewing machine, though, is an amazing idea. Idea. When you think about it, it's sort of like a topological challenge to get the thread through and then have mm -hmm. the other, I don't even know how exactly they work, but I understand that the first Singer sewing machine was patented around the 1850s. Wow. And then the first one made it to Japan in 1900. Yeah. So right around the time when more Japanese women were coming to Canada mm -hmm. and in Japan itself, prior to the sewing machine, the ability to sew was fundamental. Not just sew, but to make the cloth, all of those right. things. Weaving and dyeing and spinning the thread. And then Western style sewing became also another important part of your preparations for marriage if you were a young lady. I always wondered about some of the Japanese folktales. There's at least two that I know of that involve weaving. There's the one where the crane gets injured and then later on it comes back as a man that she helps she weaves using her own feathers she, uh, she weaves well she comes back as a woman uh -huh. uh, this crane okay. this bird and then secretly weaves fancy clothing as a present to him to thank him for helping her oh. and then there's another one where a guy rescues a spider and then the spider also weaves and so when i was younger hearing about those folk tales it seemed kind of weird to me but now i realize it was fundamental to one of the things they had to be 
able to do was this idea of making cloth and clothing. Yeah, well, if you think about all the items of clothes you have, and if you had to make all of them, or if someone in your family had to make all of them, that's a significant amount of work and time and planning and thought. That's right. We had a um, artist here at the museum as part of the Kizunai exhibit. Her name was Natalie Pershwitz, and mm. she had been interested in clothing and on her own had done this year-long project where she only wore clothes that she made herself. Wow. So nowadays, that's a significant thing. And she was talking about how the hardest part was making shoes that were functional. Oh, wow. Yeah. But it's a different trade. Yeah. But it's interesting how it creates this awareness of things that you now take for granted of things being manufactured. But back then, mm -hmm. it being fundamental. Even one of my aunts, it was apparently a condition of her marriage to my uncle mm -hmm. that she'd be able to have sewing ability. Right. Well, that is actually, I think, not just your aunt, but many Nisei Japanese Canadian women in the pre-war period, because there were so many Japanese Canadian families who ran dry cleaning businesses or cleaning businesses where they would clean and press clothes. And then if they could have a new daughter-in-law come in and be a seamstress and make repairs, then that would be an important addition to the business. It was an asset. So it wasn't just about showing your refinement with your nice embroidery, but actually contributing to the family's welfare outside of the home as well as within it. That's right. As it turned out, my father father lived with my uncle, he was much younger, and they had a dry cleaning business in Victoria. There were mm. about 10 of them or something. And he was commenting on how alterations were a significant source of income for these dry cleaning businesses. Mm. I never thought about that, actually, because I know that my grandparents owned a dry cleaning business, but it was after the war. Mm. And at that time, they would have had small children. I think my aunt would have been a baby. So it might have been my grandma doing the alterations, although she didn't go to these fancy sewing schools that we're going to talk about. Right. My grandma must have learned how to sew in Japan because she went to a finishing school there. Oh, yes. So it sounds like even though this is Western-style sewing, learning how to construct Western-style garments throughout the 20th century, it's been a method of constructing garments that's been available on both sides of the Pacific. Mm -hmm. Because the first sewing school teachers were from Japan and were setting up sewing schools here in the 1910s. Right. So the Japanese term for Western style sewing was yosai. Yes. So yo means Western and sai means sewing. And I really like the names of the different schools too. There's one that taught both Western style and Japanese style sewing that was called the Japanese and Western Sewing School for Young Women or the Waiyo Suiko Jogakko. Mm. Many of them are named after the head instructor, like the Kawano Method of Practical Sewing Instruction. Mm-hmm or the Girls College of Practical Arts, or the one that I think is really a comment on my English degree two generations later is the Academy of Useful Arts. Useful Arts, by the way, are design, dressmaking, and kindred arts. And it is an interesting thing to think about. It has the opportunity for creative outlet, as well as being a practical thing, obviously. Yeah. There are many comments about how stylish the women were, that they had clothes, that they could make them themselves and be in style and fit properly and all of those things. Speaking mm -hmm. to my own mother, she was too young, she said, before the war to go to the schools. But her own mother did go to a sewing school a couple times a week. And they had a close friend who did a lot of the sewing for them. She said that her grandmother would send materials from Japan and then they would make clothing from the material that were oh, sent over. That must have been really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. Like you said, it's both an art and also highly technical. Many of these schools, some of them were more one-year courses, but others were like three or four years. And it was a profession because mm -hmm. partly, yes, if you wanted to marry into a family that had a cleaning business, then you become a desirable bride. But there were also women who opened their own businesses 
with their skills as dressmakers. Right. And it seemed there was that survey in about the 1930s of what yeah, kind of work. Yeah, 1935. And it looked for, like in cities. Yeah, for second generation Japanese right, Canadians. Right, yeah. They, about a third of yeah. the women that they surveyed of all second generation Japanese Canadians in urban areas were dressmakers as opposed to any other profession that they mm -hmm. might be. Mm -hmm. Which is a lot for yeah. one trade. You think about that. Of course, everyone would know a dressmaker if they weren't one themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I also think it's interesting that it's all women, of course, or maybe not, of course. And it's listed as a semi-skilled profession. And there's a few tailors, but all the tailors are men. And tailoring yes. is a skilled profession. Uh -huh. So it's been very divided in that way by gender. Yes. Though they're closely related professions. Yes, that's, that is weird. The idea of dressmaking yeah. yeah. versus... Yeah, and some of the schools did teach tailoring as well as dressmaking, so it wasn't really that they were completely separate mm. disciplines, but it definitely in practice seemed to work out that way, at least in the mid-30s. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's also this term of seamstress mm -hmm. that I seem to hear in sort of older novels or something, or, <laughs> or biographies of people that a lot of people were seamstresses in general, and I suppose that that is a common occupation. But in particular, because the Nisei women, even if they'd gone to other schools or had other their skills, they weren't being hired by non-Japanese people. So it was difficult mm -hmm. to find work in other fields as well. Right. So it was a highly practical and useful profession. Mm -hmm. And I think the main one that was available to young Japanese Canadian women other than working in the cannery or being a housekeeper. Yes, a housekeeper. Cleaning, right. cleaning houses. My father had a sister. They were living on Salt Spring Island. Mm -hmm. So just as an illustration of how significant these were, she went from Salt Spring Island to stay in Vancouver to take a sewing course. There were a couple schools that were quite revered and people would come from all over the province and board and learn how to sew. So it seems that a lot of them were, instead of going to high school, actually going to sewing school as a replacement yes so. because if you go to high school you might be qualified to work in an office but no one will hire you mm -hmm. because you're japanese canadian mm -hmm. so this is part of the pre-war climate of the community was how they were able to survive through specific trades that they were allowed into and becoming very skilled at them because there were a number of really well-regarded schools one of them that i thought was really interesting was the girls college of practical arts mm-hmm which was actually run by mm -hmm. Sada Shinobu, who was the wife of Saburo Shinobu. I think we might have talked about him a bit. He was a really important person in getting the franchise for the Japanese-Canadian veterans of the First World War. Oh. So Mrs. Sada Shinobu ran the Girls' College of Practical Arts at 302 Alexander Street. And her so I goal, guess not far from the Japanese school. Yeah, very close. Her goal was not the mere teaching of practical arts, but rather the molding of the girls' characters first an instruction along practical lines. Yeah, I noticed that in addition to the dressmaking, they had the cooking and flower making and arranging and yeah. manners as a course. Yeah. So basically it's a finishing school, mm. but it also has this very practical aspect of having the potential to become a trade. So you see it becoming a part of the landscape of what's available to young women at the time. Mrs. Shinobu said, we wish our girls to acquire the best that Japanese and Canadian civilization have to offer. And she did that through teaching, sewing, as well as things like Japanese style flower arrangement. Mm -hmm. The significance of sewing, I hadn't really realized so much until I talked to my parents. And I guess it's something that you take for granted as well. But my dad mentioned that even his underwear was made by repurposing flower sacks. Right. And that would have been sewn, yes. right? By hand sewn. Yeah, right. you don't think about that. But if you look at the pattern books that they have in the online exhibit, 
there's patterns for underwear. That is completely bizarre to me. But then maybe if you're used to your mother sewing your underwear, um, <laughs> then the idea of a machine doing it would seem rather strange as well. Yeah, that's right. You get it so it fits properly. And Midge Ayukawa mentioned how her mother would make clothing that could be let out as she grew, as Midge grew. So, oh, yeah. so that was very practical and well, clever. Yeah. yeah. I had dresses like that when I was little that my mom or my aunt had sewn. Hmm. Yeah. But it is also, again, the dearness of fabric. You want to be able to make whatever you have last as long as possible because you can't exactly wear rice sacks as your dress. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're yeah, doing it as an art statement nowadays. Yeah. There was apparently a few places in Vancouver where they would go to buy the material. Oh, really? I think one of them was Hudson's Bay, and then there was another store nearby on Granville Street that they also would go to. Oh, yeah, there was a Japanese store, just Shimo Takahara, it oh. was called, the store on Granville Street that sold fabric, mm. apparently. And so they seem to be conscious of that, but repurposing clothes. So if you couldn't be patched, then to be turning them into something else. Right. Well, there's even the stories of many of the picture brides who would come to Canada with their trunk full of kimono mm. and end up repurposing those silk kimono to use right, as clothes right. for their children. Right. So from all avenues, you know, rice sacks, buying new fabric from Canada and reusing it as much as possible, or even cloth from Japan from a former life. So, I keep saying so, but it seems relevant in this particular podcast. You're just trying to slip as many puns in as possible, Raymond. Well, let's carry on with this thread of reasoning. Oh, no. uh, <laughs> and we can go into, obviously, the most significant historical period of being relocated, incarcerated. Dispersed. Uh, dispersed all of those things and the importance of sewing machines in the internment camps right i think it's interesting that because a lot of them were treadle run mm -hmm. that they could still work even if there's no electricity yeah. and that was important you didn't want an electric one yeah come 1942 right and that many different classes and clubs set up in the different ghost towns because again it's still part of the community life that there's a new generation of young women who need to learn how to sew and practice their sewing and or just sew clothes for their families. Right. There's one story I, I saw where the blackout curtains that were used during wartime were taken down and then this woman converted them into clothing for her kids. Must have looked a little grim. <laughs> uh, formal, formal suit, I think. Yes, yes. Um, I thought it was really impressive, too, that apparently in the internment camps, there were some husbands who would be basically become house husbands because right. their wives were... Very yeah. skilled seamstresses and would be teaching other women in the camps how to sew. Yes. So they yes. would be the, sort of the breadwinner. Uh huh. Ironically, uh -huh. because they have this domestic skill so well advanced, yes, yes. that their husband has to take care of all the cooking and, <laughs> yeah. and babies. Yeah, that's right. And of course, these women were mainly women who had run schools in Vancouver beforehand. Uh, I think about the Academy of Domestic Arts, which started in Steveston, moved to East Vancouver, and then ended up in Greenwood and was run by Mrs. Matsuzaki. Mm. There's also the Marietta School of Costume Design, which seems like it was a slightly more modern school. Its principal was a Nisei named Haruko Morishita. Uh -huh. And she sort of advertises her school as being the popular school for the Nisei women. Oh, I see. Um, and she ended up in Tashmi, and they had a school there called the Tashmi School of Fashion. It looks like she and also Mrs. Ikeda were involved in that. I noticed that they even had the diplomas and everything uh, yeah, it's for very, those schools. Very, very official looking. Yeah, it's very specific official. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's a trade. Yes. Right? 
And that's why we know a lot about the many different schools is we can see the graduates kept their certificates for decades before donating them to the museum. Mm -hmm. So once they were able to move out, one of the opportunities that came up for those who had these sewing skills, those who moved to Toronto, there's a garment district there where there are a number of companies and they were able to find work there as one of the locations. Also, those kinds of factories were open to people of different backgrounds. So that became a way to earn a living and start their lives over again. Right. Again, like even after the war, it was a place that was relatively free of discrimination. A really interesting story found from the exhibit was Kiyoshi Shimizu, who moved to Toronto and she had a job lined up to be a maid, but then it fell through. And the RCMP gave her a list of names of other families who were looking for a maid so she could try and work something out with one of them. But she said, you know what, I don't actually know how to be a maid. I have a master's degree in social work. So maybe just leave me alone. I'll figure it out. But it did take her about a month to find a job that used her expertise, her skills in social work, which is one of those fields that was more difficult to get into mm -hmm. as a Japanese Canadian, right? Because it was more professional. But in that month that she was looking for jobs in social work, she was able to use the skills that she had learned growing up in her family doing finishing work at a dressmaker. So it became a bridge for her into that new life to be able to sew and support herself while she was overcoming those hurdles and being able to enter her field of choice. I know that my uncle was able to open another dry cleaning business in Toronto subsequently. And then so they had the alterations. I had another aunt who was involved in that. And on the home front, obviously these skills are still useful. So my grandmother would be making quilts out of scrap materials. My grandfather, actually, I still remember he had this pillow that he had sewn using the labels from gin bottles. What? Because, yeah, see, see the were they made of cloth? Yeah, they were, because it was called white satin, this type of gin. <laughs> And, and so, so the, the nice labels, soft. yeah, so the labels, he collected a lot of them and then he had sewn them together. So he, he knew how to sew. sew them himself yeah. He really wanted this luxurious. I, I don't know, garment. but it is very smooth. Yeah. I remember it being smooth. And, wow. Yeah. I guess he thought he was hard at work when he was drinking those gin bottles. <laughs> he was thinking about what to do with them. <laughs> he had a plan in mind. <laughs> So nowadays, we were talking about this before, about how usually we buy clothes, maybe you get them modified, or after the war, people might have been more likely, if they're going to sew, just to use existing patterns, whereas, right. whereas before, if they'd gone to the schooling, they would be able to make their own patterns, make their own measurements and all those sort of things. So the, right. the demand for the schools also seemed to decrease. It was so just intense because before. because of the technological advancements mm -hmm. and the way the market changed and started to provide these patterns for people who wanted to sew, but didn't have the time to be able to learn all of the techniques for becoming a complete clothing artist, mm -hmm. really. Yeah, definitely. Because um, my mom sews quite a bit, but she doesn't make her own patterns. And I always thought of her as a really talented seamstress. But then I think about one of the things you should look at in the online exhibit. Please go and check it out. It's on our website under online exhibits. Is the pictures of the pattern books that these women made, where they would have all these different designs for every kind of clothing. You know, blouses, skirts, dresses, men's clothing, clothing for children, including, you know, underwear, bathrobes, everything. And think about how well you need to understand the way garments are 
are put together to be able to see the shape of a flat piece of fabric and how you need to cut it to have like a particular fashionable sleeve or collar. Yes, yes, yes. So many little details, the way that that works. And I wondered about the transformation of the two dimensions into three dimensions. It's sort of like a mathematical thing. Mm -hmm, it really is. It's a kind of engineering, really. Mm -hmm. It's using yes. very different materials, of course, but you are engineering something with a very pliable material, mm -hmm. which is its own challenge. So if you haven't seen our online exhibits, we have quite a number of them. This is just the oldest, actually. It's 20 years old now. It was made in 1996. It's the Our Mother's Patterns exhibit. So we wanted to spotlight it. Mm -hmm. It was part of the Virtual Museum of Canada. Yes. So definitely check out all of our online exhibits, especially Our Mother's Patterns, which has the images of the pattern books that women would make and keep for years and years to use again and again. And I don't know, Raymond, what are you going to take away from this podcast episode? I feel I've been inspired now to try and figure out how to use the sewing machine at my house and see if I can uh, hem my pants now. It certainly has been a lot more interesting, all mm -hmm. of the background and record recognizing how significant a part of the lives of the people it was. Yeah, you can say it's part of you exploring your heritage. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel inspired just to know that sewing is part of our history as Japanese Canadians in this way, although I think I'll leave the hemming to the experts for now. Raymond, what do you think of the craft of dressmaking? Now I think it sounds Japanese Canadian to me. Me too. Mm -hmm.